I'm Hannah Warmer and welcome to season three of The Rosin Diaries, where I'll be discussing everything violin and film composing related and everything in between with a variety of guests. Hello ladies and gentlemen, I am joined today by Rebecca Harris. I know her from the film Out of Time, but she she's a wonderful director, a film director. Um, I think I've just forgotten, but um, five wins, 11 nominations in awards. So absolutely doing so well. And I've invited her on the podcast today because I've had a lot of musicians and I thought it's time to talk about the other industry I'm involved in, which is film. So welcome. Should I say Becky or Rebecca? Um, Rebecca's fine. Welcome to the podcast. I call you Becky because of social media, but obviously on IMDb, you're Rebecca. Yeah, that's right. So more official stuff is Rebecca, but yeah, on social media, it tends to be Becky more so than anything. But I answer to both. So (laughs) (laughs) So just to start, um, I'm just going to warn you, most people listening to the podcast are more knowledgeable about music than the film industry and only working within it on the shallow edges I've I've learned more about it but could you tell us the highs of your career um the highs of my career I I think all of it's a high to be honest um I started off um on a film called Checking In and I was co-director on a section of that Um, and then from there I got to direct a segment of House of Screaming Death which was an absolute blast um it has Ian McNeese in it and he's an absolute pleasure to work with um, it's, it's so good <laughs> um, from there because um, those were team collaborations um, with other directors and writers and then yeah. I did my own micro short called Mirrors which I wrote and directed mm-hmm. then I wrote a short film called Chloe which we did film then we refilmed it because in the original I was playing Chloe and it was terrible so we started <laughs> refilming it in 2017. And I just um, asked, have you got any acting um, um, qualifications or experience at no. all? <laughs> <laughs> None at all. But it, it was really weird because Chloe was like, and Chloe was my baby. I'd written it during a really bad period um, in my life. And I wanted to kind of have complete control over it. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was the wrong decision. Um, absolutely. Because I cannot act. Um <laughs> So the reshoots went really well. Um, we still got a couple of scenes left, um, but we started it like three years ago. So it's it's probably time to get it finished. And then obviously <laughs> out of time, um, I wrote the script for while I was doing my master's at university. Um, I sent it into a few film festivals where it did really well. Um, and then I thought, okay, maybe it's time to make the film. Um, so I directed that and that has been doing really well as well. So I think the whole my whole kind of directing and writing career so far has been an absolute high. I was That was going to be my next question, actually, out of time. Um, yeah, you, that, I mean, the post-production, I know, went on through the pandemic. So I, I came on quite late to that film. Often I come on in pre-production and then have to wait around for ages. But you got, uh, we were in touch with each other um, for another contact um, in post-production, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, I contacted Liam about doing sound design um, and he suggested that you would be the person to talk to about um, doing the music. But you actually did the music for my friend Dave's film, um, Willem. Willem, yeah. I think, Um, I think, I always say this when I pronounce it, I don't know, but because it's Dutch, I think it should be pronounced Willem. Yeah, yeah, I'm never too sure whether it's Willem or Villem, but <laughs> we'll go with both. In Holland, it would be called Villem, but we're a British yeah. audience, and so we say Willem. Yeah. That's a really good film. That's a really good film. And also, um, he, um, he, some directors use temp music, so like music they think would be appropriate. Just to give you an idea, that's sometimes a handy tool to talk to composers. And the temp music he used was... Um, music as a violinist that I really love it's Schindler's List yeah oh, the music on Schindler's List yeah the, oh, 
it's amazing. It's such a an amazing film, but I think the biggest part of that is is how the music makes you feel while you're watching it. Yeah, it's amazing, but it's a film for once in a while. It's not a it's not a regular watching film. Yeah, it, it's too emotionally draining um, yeah. to watch all the time. Definitely. So, out of time, when did you film it? Um, we started. Let me see. Let me get the date right. We started in October two thousand and nineteen. Did all of uh, the, the pre-production was way before that. Um, because I, I finished the script probably the start of two thousand and nineteen. Then went into pre-production. Mm-hmm. Um, got all got all the actors together. Some of them I'd already worked with. Um, on checking in the house of screaming death, and some of them I hadn't worked with at all. Um, all of the crew were people I didn't know. Um, so that was that was an experience. But we started taking, filming in October two thousand nineteen. Sorry, I was going to say that's taking a huge risk, but also it's giving you a lot of experience to work and manage and control a project where you have to have a bit of faith. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I did all the all the pre production myself um again i'm a bit of a control freak so <laughs> i was a bit funny about letting, letting anything go um but i put a call out for um a director of photography um and ash Connerton got in touch um and we we had a meeting yeah he drove from birmingham to warsaw to come and meet me and um we were just sitting at a table um at starbucks and like he was so enthusiastic like because I'd sent him the script beforehand and he was so enthusiastic about it and he loved the script so much and he had all these ideas and I was like this is the person that I want um to to DOP my film Mm. um I knew that I could I knew I could trust him which is really hard which is odd to say because I didn't know him at all but it's how hard he'd worked at kind of putting all these ideas together and he'd written like a bit of a shot list and I was like wow you're like really interested in this film so I knew that I could trust him and he brought on his um two people that he works a lot with Rory and Luke um as his first assistant and second assistant um and they work so well together that I think was really seamless but also they were so friendly and easy to get on with that it was just a joy um, to work with them. You seem to have like a natural skill because that's something I'm not naturally naturally good at. Um, Subcontracting and passing, delegating responsibility. I either don't give enough information or micromanage and I find it hard. I don't mean to. I try my hardest, but I never... (laughs) Lately, I've got a project and I've had to delegate, and it seems I've seems to have um, grown the skill a little bit more. Um, but you seem to have naturally done that. Like um, you've, it seems like a really clever idea that you found someone you trusted, and then he had more people he trusted. So there's there's a kind of a tree of trust, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think if you trust somebody enough to be on your project, if they have somebody that they trust um, that will make them look good as well, because it's not just about making me look good. If he, if I trust him and he brings people that are terrible on board, that just makes him look bad. Yeah, but that's so clever. I've never thought it. And that's the same. Me and Liam worked extremely well together because we worked together a lot. And you seem to have, like, naturally had an instinct to know to use people that, you know, work well together. And perhaps that has been a downfall for me for bigger projects before where I've just brought on, like, I have, a you know, like, just loads of people that don't know each other at all and, like, expect them all to work together. So that's a, that's a lesson. Yeah, I think because it's a, it, I'm quite limited in my experience, Um but working on checking in with people that I trust and then on how to scream in death with people that I trust, the actors that we use for that, we kind of have reused again because we trust them so well. Um, so it made sense to me to bring them on board, but also, you know, that level of trust has to be maintained. Um, so if yeah. I trust somebody, then I trust that they kind of won't let me down. 
Yeah. And, and why let themselves down? Because that's what that's what people would do in the end, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, and I do like that. And I like the fact that, because I can't remember how I even found Liam, to be honest. <laughs> that's really bad. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it worked really well. And the fact that he then suggested you um, was fantastic. You know, it, it worked. Because, um, again, he trusted you. I trusted him. So Yeah. And the fact that you had that found out afterwards that you had worked with Dave. Yeah. And that he trusted you as well. You know, it is it is that I'm saying trust a lot here. Um, but you know, when it when something is your when something's your baby, you do want to be able to trust people. Um, and something like this, where other things if other other lines of work you can replace or it isn't ever evolutionary thing but when it's films are one-off projects it takes so much time to make them and then people consume them once or twice and so it's such a lot of work to go into a short space of consumption if that makes sense yeah and, and it is I mean um, I think we spent nine days in total um, spread over um, a week in October um, and a few days in January and February um, of 2020, which um, was great because we just finished filming um, in February 2020. So we just finished it before COVID hit. Um, I was going to say so then. So that was great. <laughs> no, COVID did not affect your film at all, really, because post-production is, you know, it can be done in, um, you know, remotely, can't it? Yeah, so what happened was um, Jamie, the editor, um, and Ash, the DOP, they worked together a lot. So, again, I trusted Jamie to, to edit. Um, he did all that remotely, um, and we had email exchanges. Um, he'd send us the progress so far, and we'd say, right, change this, change that, and he'd do it. Um, and then once that happened and it came to you and Liam, um you know, again, everything could be sent to me by email um, and I'd look at it and double check it. And yeah, there might be little tweaks that needed doing, but overall, I think the fact that the people that I chose all trusted each other worked out really well in the end. Um, and that shows in the fact that the film now has, you know, it's won um, an award for Best Director, Best Cast, um, it's been a finalist for cinematography, for sound design, for editing. Um, there are a few that it's in for for um, score as well. I'm just waiting on those <laughs> ones. I'm, I'm trying to get a nomination or a finalist or a winner for every kind of aspect of the film because people work so hard on it. It's not... A lot of people are like, oh, your film's like really good. And I'm like, but it's... It is my film, but it's not my film. It's no, everybody but I, that worked on it. Do you know what I mean? Everyone that worked I, on it works so hard. They deserve um, some kind of recognition for that. But I also think it is a reflection on you. The more categories you win, you are the the maker. So I think it's a really good reflection on you if you win multiple categories because it means it's a um, it's an all-round film. It's not just a great script. It, you know, it's got a great cast. It's got great cinematography. It's You've done a really good job managing this project. Yeah, I mean, I've never really thought of it like that, to be honest. Uh, but that's, that's a really nice way of looking at it. Um, but it also, I, like, I think I just don't feel like I deserve all the credit, if that makes sense. Well, I do get that. I mean, obviously, everyone's work deserves credit. But um, if you look at it like building a house, if you go... Well, the windows are great, but the brickwork's a bit shoddy. You really want an, you you want the housemaker. That, I don't know what they're called, housemakers. <laughs> um, <laughs> you want the company that's building the house to do an all-round good that good job. That's what you consider. And as same with filmmakers, you may have the best scorer on earth. You may have the best lead. You may have paid a lot of money for a leading man, but to have it all means that you you delegated well. Yeah, I haven't really really thought about it like that before. I I, I do, yeah, I suppose that's a good way of looking at it. 
to a question I wasn't going to ask next but I was going to talk about um females in film actually because um I don't know if the audience know but you're a female in film um <laughs> and um well I, I was listening to this history podcast and it turns out women started Hollywood it was just taken over by financiers in New York that happened to be men and they thought that when they put a lot of money into stuff then it should be in the safe hands of a man but really women have it like women bosses or women with power tend to get a bad rap whether they're seen as not being authoritative enough or that they're a little bit control freak you know like the woman boss and um so it is great to see that how well and also um working under you how calmly you appeared to I don't know what's going on behind the scenes but how calmly <laughs> You appeared and t in a timely manner. I didn't get a lot of nagging for you, but I, I, you know, I think I delivered stuff quite quickly. But at the same time, you didn't leave me to do whatever I wanted. It was quite a calm, timely process, and it wasn't rushed, and it wasn't, which I have had in other films, it wasn't any sort of panic stations. So, yeah, um, how have you found, as a woman in film, do you find the the access of that difficult? Do you find there's um, any pressures, or do you find that people kind of put you in a box or that kind of thing? Um, it's really interesting to discuss that actually because I'm I'm currently writing my PhD, um, which is based around kind of female directors and writers. Um, so I might need that podcast stuff. Um, <laughs> but it's it's interesting so you know you had um i think it's uh ida lipino she was like uh, i think it's 1940s director um and she said that she would never raise her voice um she'd be like oh would you mind doing this darling and things like that and kind of mothering people yeah. that she was in charge of um and that i don't know that that felt that when i read that that felt kind of but why are you doing that? So, like, when you said, like, I didn't, I didn't nag you over email. Um, yeah. Nagging is really only a term we give you to women. women. Well, actually, I was. I, you're the only female director I've worked with, so I actually use that term a lot for men. <laughs> but I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a bit contrary, but I was actually when I was thinking, I wasn't thinking. When I was thinking, I have been nagged. I wasn't actually. I use the term. I actually use the term to any anyone. Yeah. And also, I like quite like using terms that are used at women, but using at men a lot. Yeah. So you have the whole nagging, which is tends to be reserved for women. Um, you have bossy, <laughs> and it's like it's like no, I'm not bossy. I'm the boss. <laughs> you know, um, we use very gendered language um, anyway in society, but but like you say. Um, you know, women pretty much started Hollywood and then they were kind of kicked out. Um, yeah. As soon as money became involved, more men got involved. Um, there's, a, there's a book I'm reading at the minute, which is by, it's, it's quite old. It's by um, Kaplan um, and she discusses um, how it was started by women and how they slowly got kind of kicked out. Um, the, the book's really good. It's called Women and Film. Um, both yeah. sides of the camera but it's like not, it's 1983 um so there are there are books after that there's one called women in horror that i'm reading at the moment and women versus hollywood um and they're all really interesting in that respect that you assume that men just started hollywood and women just weren't allowed in that you women started in and were kicked out <laughs> the lady on the podcast was the lady who wrote women versus hollywood no way yeah it's oh, on it's on podcast but the they were interviewing the lady who wrote that book oh brilliant i'll have to have a look for that um but yeah so i think i was reading it's like eight percent of all hollywood blockbusters were directed by women in 2018 or 2019 um and recently there's been an interview with um i can't remember his name but he runs Cannes film festival and he, he actually said, in some countries, there just aren't women directors. And it's like, no, there are. Yeah, it's, You're just it's not shocking. finding them out. 
it's it's similar to I am actually um well I ran my own orchestra for quite a while it's just I I actually is too much admin I didn't get to perform anymore so I stopped but it was a professional orchestra and it was funded by arts council and stuff but um we had a female um conductor and I'm gonna name the instrument not the man um a male clarinetist was talking to me just casually he's like to be honest I just can't um get on board with a female conductor because oh. they're just too distracting it's like well I'm sorry you find them distracting you should probably work on that if you want to continue working yeah I mean that, that's a you issue isn't it really if yeah. you're finding them distracting yeah. I mean I didn't say anything at the time but I wish I could go back to that moment and, and just said well hopefully you work on that because that sounds a real problem yeah and it, it starts um in school um where girls are told that they can't wear like spaghetti strap dresses or tank tops because they're distracting the boys and it's like but you're willing to take a girl out of class to go and get changed and disrupt her learning then maybe tell the boy to pack it in yeah like you know it's it's ridiculous but it starts at an early age um but coming back to being a woman in in the film industry um there are so few that are recognized like you know, even when Catherine Bigelow won uh, an Oscar for Hurt Locker, it was uh, Spielberg's ex wins. And it's just yeah. like, we're not connected to men like that. You can't just be like, oh, that's Spielberg's ex. Um, she's a director in her own right and should be spoken about yeah. as such. Um, but I think if you asked people to name women directors, they wouldn't be able to name very many. Um, yeah, but, you know the and list I, of male. I can see their faces or name the productions I like, but I'm finding it hard in my head to think of names. And and that's because a lot of the time they're just not trusted. Yeah. Um, to to helm big budget films, and yet you've got like uh, Game of Thrones. I'm, uh, I remember reading that the two uh, men. That yeah. spoke to HBO, I think it is, about making that. They had no experience at all. <laughs> I know. Well, and, I think that kind of shot, they shot themselves in the foot with no experience because season eight. <laughs> to be honest, I haven't watched Game of Thrones because I got so annoyed at all the hype. I was like, well, I'm not watching it now. So that. Uh, um... <laughs> I, hype, so I just tuned on because I had a childhood crush on Sean Bean and he was in it. And then I got really into it and no one liked it first season. I just got to bring up the Game of Thrones thing because they've done it again. So I'm really Game of Thronesy. House of the Dragon, I've noticed this because I've been following it. I've got a notification on IMDb. And Ryan, someone, he's the showrunner on it. Um, no experience. So you can go as a, as a man. Well, you can go as a white man. Go and pitch this idea for Game of Thrones. Be given what was it, eight million dollars an episode, and have had no experience. Like that, just that blows my mind that people that have no experience can just kind of be given all this money and have access to all these great actors. Like I kind of want to watch Game of Thrones because Pedro uh, Pascal's in it, but really I good. also really don't want to watch it because uh, <laughs> I know how he dies. Um, <laughs> But um, it just blows my mind, you know, there are women in the film industry that are working so hard, getting no recognition, and yet these guys just turn up, get given so much money, and that's it. Like, I just don't understand. <laughs> I don't get it. I do. You know I do get it. I know what it is. It's the brotherhood, isn't it? But, you know, it's... it's. Well, I, I don't even think it's the brotherhood. I think sometimes... It's not all the time. It's not every man that gets given an opportunity. But I feel like sometimes in the right situation, in the right circumstance, two guys, chances, they come out of nowhere. And that story has been sold to men so much that yeah. they buy into it. Um, for instance, what is the one with the film with Will Smith? Really good film where he becomes a stockbroker. Uh, the, what, the one where he's living on the streets with his boy. Oh, is that The Pursuit of Happiness? That's it, yeah. Again, he does a little chance of thing and he gets it and he runs with that. But boys are sold that and they're given the confidence of that. But also yeah. people, people who are making those decisions are sold that story and they want to take a chance on that chancer. Yeah. I yeah, feel like... Do, 
but so, maybe we're just maybe we're just conditioned as women that we don't take those chances or yeah, we're so used to being say, turned down that we just don't I, bother. I didn't know. I mean, I, I think for some of my confidence <laughs> is that I didn't notice this as a girl. So when I'd yeah. see a form like Pursuit of Happiness, I would learn that lesson and I would be, you know, like I've never noticed, I don't know if I'm like sex blind or something, and that sounds really rude. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I never noticed that. It's only, I, and I think I got a bit of confidence knocking when I came out of university and sometimes sexist jokes. I was shocked when that guy said about conductors. It's never, I didn't even know I was hiring a female conductor. I wasn't being a feminist. I didn't even know. Graduate years, I've learned these lessons. But I feel like I was, it was lucky that I learned those lessons when I was old enough to go, oh, that's interesting to know that knowledge, as opposed to learning that as a child and having it stop me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, I think the problem as well that we have as, I keep on saying as women, um, because obviously that's my lived experience. Um, but obviously, it sounds very, very binary when I'm saying men and women, and I don't mean to be. We are speaking as women. I mean, I don't think it would be really, for me, I can't speak for, and I don't, I can't speak for any other sex or any other race or any, because for mm. speaking for an experience that I haven't lived myself, then I'm just guessing, aren't I really? But it's not denying any person's experience. No, and and I, obviously I don't I don't mean to do that. But obviously, as women, a lot of the time when you are going for jobs and things, you, especially when you are the term I hate the term, but childbearing age, um, people don't want to take a chance because it's like, but are you going to get pregnant? Are you going to leave? And it's like, but your talent should not be judged on whether you can procreate. <laughs> yeah. You know. A lot of women don't want children. A lot of women don't, can't have children. But also, men are not held in the same regard. No, you no, know, nothing. It's not like he's going to be having a child. Oh, is he going to be off? Having um, children and uh, marriage is meant to be good for a, a man's career, where it's not so good for a woman's. Yeah, and it's it's horrendous. Um, and like you were saying before, when you didn't really notice. Um, kind of when you said you're sex blind <laughs> um, <laughs> like um i've forgotten her name we we're just talking about her oh lord bigelow Catherine bigelow oh, yeah. um she says she's a director she doesn't see being a woman as a problem but then she doesn't have to because she was married to spielberg she's already in the industry yeah she, she's already respected so you know she's already trusted enough uh, yeah. because of her relationship with a man or to yeah. a man um so that's her advantage um you know people like uh, Ava DuVernay being a black woman you know she's had to work doubly hard to to even be recognized so that's who I was thinking of when I said I could see her face but I can't think of her name that's who I was thinking <laughs> of yeah uh, she hasn't she done oh I, and again I'm ter by the way I'm terrible with words but she did um the five innocent boys who were done for a terrible crime when they see us yes that was oh that yeah. was such a and hasn't she also done or am I wrong about this hasn't she done the Zendaya program I'm um, not sure actually Maybe she didn't do that one but she's done a lot of really good stuff uh, and a children's thing that was really good as well but Moving on, because I've gone past my normal time. <laughs> you questions. It's so nice to have a chatterbox on, because normally <laughs> I've them up. Um, so, back to the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Um, any upsides from the pandemic for this? We know there's a lot of downsides, but what are the upsides of the pandemic because of this network, uh, because of this pan? sorry, upsides to the film industry because of this <laughs> pandemic? Um, I tell you not to worry about getting your words wrong and everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that people have had to become more inventive. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't. I've watched Host. Um, I don't know if you if you've watched it yet, but Host mm -hmm. is a fantastic horror film that was made during 
the pandemic and it's uh, purely on um, I, I say Zoom I don't know if it's officially Zoom or whether it's Teams or whatever um, but they use technology to their advantage and you wouldn't expect a horror film to work in that way I know there's things like uh, films in the past like Unfriended um, which is a good horror film again Donova um, Zoom or Teams or whatever um, but host feels different because it was made during the pandemic. Yeah, um, it's really culturally relevant, and I haven't seen it, but I'm guessing playing on the fears that are already potentially could be there. So yeah, so it's it's a fantastic horror film. I had to look away so many times, um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's so good. Um, so it was directed by. Um, Jed Shepard, no, directed by Rob Savage, sorry, but it was written by Gemma Hurley, uh, Rob Savage and Jed Shepard, although Gemma Hurley seems to be left out of some of the the tweets aimed at host, which is a bit annoying, Um, but it's it's fantastic and um, it's the feeling of loneliness that really kind of hold the film together because we know that it's during a pandemic we know that these friends are talking over i say talking over zoom they're holding a seance over zoom or, or teams or whatever like you do um, <laughs> like you do um but it works so well because like obviously the seance is like a horror trope isn't it really um so many films so many horror films have this seance that brings out these demons um so the fact that they took this horror trope and made it work over, um, I'm just going to keep on saying Zoom because I don't know what the official one is, yeah. but we'll go with Zoom. We're uh, not enjoying the particular streaming service. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but the fact that they take that trope, make it work over Zoom with these people that are nowhere near each other, but it still works. And it's do they, clear that they are truly alone as well. Do they, yeah, do they use, like, for instance, the the um, lack of vis- great visuals as as that, does that add to the fear? You know, like Zoom hasn't got perfect visuals. Things, you know, it, lo- it can be a little jumpy and stuff. Is any of those sort of technical issues add to the horror? <laughs> Yeah, so um, there's a scene where one of the characters is um, is talking on Zoom and you can hear noises, you can hear stuff going on, but she can't see it and you can't see it. Whereas normally as, as, um, as an audience, you have this, you kind of know what's happening. Yeah. Because there's, there's other camera angles. Um, and things like that but you you don't have that in this and you are you've become a player you become yeah you become a player in it and it's it's terrifying Um, but there's this feature that's used where you can make your background move so you can like record yourself moving around in the background so that when you're talking on zoom this background is moving and like you're in the background interrupting yourself it's, it's hard to explain yeah um, but that's used really well um, that's true. in host like you don't know what's happening with the character and this background starts and you think this character's come back but then you realize it's just the background video moving and that makes it even more terrifying because you don't know what's happening you can just hear this stuff going on but you can't see it. That's really good. I love this sort of innovation. I'm really an upbeat person. I like, you can't change your situation. Like we're not, we can't change this pandemic, but I like people lean into it instead of fighting against it. <laughs> you know, they've really learned into it and use the creativity to their advantage. Yeah, I think host is probably the most known one that's done it. But if you have a quick search online, there are a lot of filmmakers that are, they have been making things over the, the pandemic, you know, trapped in their, their flats anyone, or their houses. I knew, I knew, um, I liked the David Tennant thing. Have you seen that? Yes, staged. So 
Yeah. I haven't watched it yet and it is on my list. But the fact that they were just like, Do you know what? Let's take advantage of this. Let's get two like famous actors, David Tennant um, and Michael Sheen. And let's just have them talking over Zoom. They are so broken. <laughs> like, they really and also um Adrian Lester, I know him a little bit because I tweeted a bit with him um to do with uh, Lawrence Fox <laughs> um on Twitter. Um and I was agreeing and Adrian Lester that he started following me and stuff, so we follow each other on Twitter. Yeah. So I really like Adrian Lester. <laughs> Uh, himself he he guest stars and and but all of them they're so brave they open up a lot of stuff that is semi-truthful about themselves hmm. but take it to an extreme so adrian lester is actually an exerciser but they they really he really um takes that to a massive extreme and and they, it's really funny but the the humor is kind of like how much of this is true but, you know, should i be laughing <laughs> it's it's basically you know where you everyone's or lots of people have done it in the pandemic where you just go a little bit unhinged yeah and I, and, I, and I love that I mean I haven't watched staged yet but I think that having something that is solely online like that um mm. must work really well there's something that um oh it's gonna bug me because I'm not gonna remember what it's called but Stephen Mangan um, did something before the pandemic, like well before the pandemic, and it was um, being a therapist over Zoom. Um, and I'm trying to hang ups. It's called hang ups, and um, it's brilliant. It's brilliant, but it cuts away to a lot of other stuff. So it's not purely over Zoom. It's got like Alice Lowe in it, who's brilliant, um, and it kind of feels like that was the forebearer even though yeah. it wasn't because the pandemic wasn't even a thing then. But it feels like people might have watched that and gone, right, can we take advantage yeah. of that? Yeah, um, this was... But yeah, it just feel like they took advantage and then went, right, we can do this. We can still be creative. We can um, use this technology to our advantage and make it work. That sounds really good. I was going to bring up, because what I found the upside of the pandemic, I don't know how this works for directors, but for me, a big thing is location. Despite me being able to work um, remotely, I um, it is much better for composers to be in LA, to um, LA, sorry, I don't know if that came across clearly. It's the biggest hub for composers, and it's great for networking. Um, the pandemic has really evened the playing field on that because everyone's got a network via Zoom and via, you know, every, everything's out there now. LinkedIn has been everyone's friend, apart from the fact that LinkedIn DMs have got really weird over this um, pandemic. <laughs> but on LinkedIn, you know, they think it's Tinder. I've got actually got one of my podcasts <laughs> called People Who Use LinkedIn Like Tinder. Um <laughs> But also for women, because uh, it's a it's a crazy thing. But composers for film, there there's something. It's something like ninety eight percent of composers for film are in the same way directors are men, and that's changed in the pandemic because they're really just they're not talking to you in the flesh. They don't know anything about you. They don't know what you look like. They can you know once you get to know each other a bit more. But the first thing they see now is your examples of your music. So that's worked really well for me. How about you? Any any working good stuff? <laughs> Um, I think you're right about it kind of creating more of a level playing field. You know, people can't afford to fly over to America and um, be in L.A. or New York. Um, so people are having to do a lot of online calls. And that is really good in the fact that you can squeeze a few in in a day. Um, you can still have a good chat um, and get to know somebody. But like you say, a lot of people will look at your work now and not, just kind of be like oh you're not suitable they'll look at yeah. your work and then they'll talk to you and then they'll get to know you and and it is it is kind of leveling out a little bit for people that that don't have the money quite frankly all the time to yeah. travel um, the, the the networking for composers networking came before even looking at your work you have to network just to get them to look at your work Whereas yeah. now it's like work, and then if we like you, we'll talk to you in a Zoom. Yeah. That's handy. 
It is. It really is. <laughs> um, and also, there's no excuse anymore. If they just didn't like it, they just didn't like your work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Has it exposed the pandemic? Any problems within the industry, do you think? Um, I think it has. I think, because obviously there's, there's not been a lot of, well, cr the creative sector as a whole, so theatres, cinemas, um, as well as, you know, filming on location has been really difficult. But I think it took a few months, but like, you know, there are unions like Beck2 that put COVID guidelines in place, um, screen skills, do COVID training. Um, so you can get a certificate to say that you are COVID trained before you go on set. But I think that money solves a lot of it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot of big productions can afford to have their COVID coordinators in place. They can pay for tests to be done. They can um, pay to have you know, more hotel rooms or trailers or whatever so that people are more separated. Um, they can pay more to have PPE equipment and things like that. So in that respect, I think money does solve a lot. Um, and in the UK, particularly, government funding hasn't exactly been fantastic. No. Um, so like in 2018, the creative industries as a whole created uh, £111 billion um to the UK economy and in July 2020 they were given 1.5 billion fund and support for all arts like how how does that work how yeah and that be, how, how can that be enough also I actually have a problem with the accessibility to that funding because I have received funding from Arts Council and, and um Heritage Lottery and I'd say particularly Arts Council um the people that get the money well not people so much but the 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 industries or, or the organizations that get the money are the more well-off organizations so yeah. the, to write a proposal to get funding you have to be really well trained in it and I did loads of research I looked through stuff I could find online on proposals that were and none of the questions are actually how good is the art it's all like no. it's all like, you have to write the proposal like how many people reach how much diversity and stuff like but it, it doesn't actually go to the arts and you have to really phrase it well and then and nothing is to do with how good the art is but the the huge organizations who are applying for this get it all the time because they have people in there who who are guaranteed to pass tick all the boxes they can write a good proposal yeah so they will have proper people in, in in place to write proposals because that's what they do all the time whereas a lot of independents a lot of self-employed people won't have that experience you can pay there's companies that charge you money to <laughs> to do a proposal for you and they've like got a 98 percent success rate but it's such yeah. a it seems inaccessible if you have to pay to get the fund, you know, surely it should be uh, granted in such a way. And I think that I, I've never once had to attach to Arts Council or Heritage Lottery um, evident, like recordings of my work or, you know, any huge of the quality of work I'm doing, which is yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's, and it's been quite difficult for self-employed as well. Um, so obviously I know a lot of actors that, um haven't had any work at all yeah um, and they can't actually access any kind of funding you know they're self-employment funding they're not eligible for um they're not gonna be able to put a proposal together and get money that way so a lot of people have been left out there is um a twitter hashtag um about that and i can't remember what it is um but there's so many people that have been left out yeah um and like you say the big you know the, the companies that are used to writing proposals are the ones still getting the money yeah I was going to say when I did the arts funding in the past it was for past projects it wasn't for covid support and stuff yeah. but um but um I have been getting the government size grant hmm. as a self-employed person but that doesn't if anyone's new to the industry if you've not got enough tax returns behind you, you can't access it. If you do part-time cafe work on zero hours, you can't access self-employed. It's, yeah, it's quite terrible like that. 
and that's how a lot of actors um well how a lot of people that are in independent filmmaking like myself um you are gonna have a part-time job <laughs> yeah. you know and you'll, you'll fit it in around um everything else that you do so yeah. because you've decided to get a part-time job to live on while you're trying to make independent films you're automatically turned down for any funding um but it feels like the government isn't really that interested in the, in the creative industries anyway because they're slashing funding for creative well they're thinking about slashing funding for creative um subjects at university a lot of schools don't even teach um subjects like media anymore music's gone music lesson yeah. stuff um being unfunded well defunded 10 years ago most state schools now primary schools and definitely senior schools don't have any classical um program at all there's no way um children can access learning a violin whereas i was at school i learned it at school so you'll yeah. find in the creative industries are now only viable for privileged children yeah so private schools um people that can pay for private lessons um, i mean i was lucky when i was at school i learned the violin badly but i learned the violin and then i moved on to drums because that was more my thing um but there are students now that aren't having access to any of that you know yeah. and where are your future composers your future filmmakers um, well, your future artists where are they going to learn those skills this is my right this is my conspiracy theory i'm not an anti-vaxxer i'm not a flatter but this is my conspiracy theory though okay so jobs for the future what ones can be automated my guess is um amazon warehouses can be automated shop um uh the checkout ladies or men can be automated warehouses do you know what jobs can't be automated or take longer to automate arts jobs mm. so I find it a little bit I mean this is just a conspiracy and anyone listening to this podcast may, but I find it a little bit kind of coincidental that jobs that will still be there in the future are no longer available to working class people just putting that yeah. out there say so what you if want <laughs> if you're rich you're fine so yeah you know, I, I read um, a statistic, 14% of um, people go to private schools in the UK. That seems a bit high to me, but whatever. But definitely more than 14% make up any of the people in charge of the creative arts. Mm. Yeah. Um, so they're pushing um, working class people out of um, the creative arts so that it will only be accessible for rich yeah. people yeah Absolutely. i think i think the reason it's 14 percent because i know a lot of middle class people do this so middle class people pay um for you know the grammar school education there's some grammar schools left open i know a lot of um middle class people who send their children to private school up until the age of 11 when it's cheaper because then with that education they're more likely to pass their 11 plus and then they don't have to pay when they're in secondary school oh okay so there's a lot more pain for private school for the under 11s. So you'll find, I think you'll find the percentages up because people will scrimp and save and miss holidays for those first years of their life or put them in private school for age seven to 11, you know, a few years. We won't do any holidays, then they're sorted. So that's the kind of thing, which I, I don't blame and they're trying the best for their children. But, you know, I've, I wish people, not not the parents so much, but the government would perhaps put a bit more care into state schools and people wouldn't have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, any any it sounds really bad, but anything working class, they just don't really care about. Um, no. It's like trying to privatise the NHS, but that's a whole other conversation. Got quite deep. <laughs> <laughs> so we've almost hit an hour. Normally my podcasts are like 30 yeah. minutes. People won't mind, but <laughs> it's nice. Normally it's just me chatting and people going, yes. Um <laughs> So, final thing, could you, um, number one, tell us any anyone at all out there who's looking for a career in directing, could you tell us a quick brief 
like career path education and then what to do after education and then also any projects coming up oh now that's a difficult one um because a lot of directors are people that already know people in the industry um but basically go to private school and yeah. make <laughs> child <laughs> yeah make friends with 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 uh some children that already know people in the industry but for, from an independent point of view um I uh went to college I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left school and then I decided um I wanted to be a music video director yeah. so I went to the local college and enrolled in the media course um did my level three b-tech then I did a level three b-tech in music as well um oh, no. and yeah <laughs> Still can't play an instrument properly, but you know. Um, and then I did my HNC and HND at the college. Did my top up to a bachelor's. Um, and then I pretty much just I worked part time a lot. And then one of the people that I knew at college um, invited me to come and speak to one of the directors of checking in and they kind of they said oh yeah come on board um, which was amazing really because they didn't really know me um, but they trusted Cushy enough to trust that I would do a good job again coming back to this trust thing um, and that's how I got in there and then the first thing I ever wrote was Chloe while I was directing House of Screaming Death I hadn't written a single thing before then um I didn't consider myself a writer I thought I'd never be able to write I didn't have good ideas um and then bam <laughs> um I had this huge wave uh, wave of depression and um I kind of let it out in the script and then I was a writer I knew that I could do it and that's how I got there I um then wrote a, a micro short had that film so that to uh, festivals Chloe I saved up for, paid for everything myself. Um, a lot of that was goodwill of the people that were on board working for um, their travel cost. Um, and then from there, right out of time, and that was that. So and for, for, for me, it's been, you know, doing a media course and doing everything else myself, really, um, but relying on other people that have given me a chance. So what you need is a good circle of, of friends, of people that you trust and go and make films together really. Um, and go from there and enter lots of film festivals and be nominated for different things and then still don't feel like you're actually a director. <laughs> what do they call that? I uh, Imposter syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> I am. I, I'm not going to name them again. One of I love this director. Um, working worked with this director. I'm not going <laughs> to because I don't want to. I don't want to name and shame people. But conversations with another director has severe imposter syndrome. Yeah, I I am either addicted to directors that have imposter syndrome or a lot of directors. <laughs> like <that. laughs> I think I think it's weird because. Um, I'm, obviously I'm, I'm a lecturer at college as well um, and I have imposter syndrome with that <laughs> like <laughs> am I really a teacher um, so I think if you already suffer from it you're going to suffer from it no matter what you're doing um, maybe do an M&M you know wear your heart on your sleeve just walk in and be like yeah I shouldn't be here come on <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe maybe that should be a thing um, but again I think it helps having well it doesn't really help having imposter syndrome but I think it helps in the respect that because you don't think so much of yourself, um, you're easier to get on with. <laughs> People with huge egos are just a no. Um, I think it's quite difficult to work with them. Maybe that's what I really enjoyed actually uh, uh, about working with you and the other director I really enjoy working with, and maybe it is that. But also I have a secret theory that anyone who's too overbearing also feels they shouldn't be there but they cover it or mask it by being overbearing and being overly confident um mm. 
I feel like a lot of people who see you are overwhelming. I, I do a lot of yoga and you know, like you should always transcend to yourself and not be too in, you know, like you shouldn't be, your energy shouldn't be too one way or other. I often find that people are so overbearing. It's because they're, they're, they're not centered themselves that if you're truly relaxed, you're a pleasure to be around. Yeah. I think you're right in the fact that some people do overcompensate. Um, yeah, so they, they, yeah so they do feel like i shouldn't be here therefore i'm going to act like i think i should be here um but also a lot of the time some people are overbearing just because they think that they're amazing <laughs> i think the one thing that makes me as a musician quite good for film is i can empathize with anyone even bad behavior i can like yeah. i can or at least sympathize and so that's quite good as a composer because you can sympathize with any of the characters and write music for it None of the music's like, these are horrible people. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. I do, I do think it, that would help a lot with, with composing, actually. Yeah. Like, I hate when... these people. My music's going to be really loud. Um, yeah. But I think, I think, yeah, being able to sympathise with them or empathise with them probably does help a lot um, so... with writing music. Sorry, so I'm rushing you because we've gone over the hour. Okay. <laughs> and for listening, I've got a concert in two hours, not when you hear this podcast, but when we're recording it. So, and I've got to be in the studio within the hour. So, okay. um, uh, final thing, uh, where are you going? Where can we see you next? What are your plans? Stuff you can tell us, obviously, but even stuff that you're hoping for, let us know. Um, I am writing two scripts at the moment. Um, actually, no, I've got four, four on the go. Um, two are micro shorts um, and the other two are short to feature length oh, um, wow. and I'm well I'm hoping to make them one is an adaptation of a book that I love uh, by Gillian Flynn called The Grown Up I'm trying to adapt that um, she doesn't know I'm doing it obviously it's it's a fan thing but I'm enjoying that and the other one is like a spy revenge thriller that my main, one of my main characters I'm imagining being Pedro Pascal which may or may not ever happen. Um, but... <laughs> hey, none, of that, none of that. We're going to have some white male energy going on. Of course it's going to happen. You're just going to approach him. Tell him. You tell him, hey, Pedro. I'm just going to tweet him and be like, Pedro, got this, this, is uh, got this film I'm making, mate, and uh, you're on board. You're a lucky guy. I chose you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, that will happen. Here's hoping. <laughs> it all sounds really fascinating, and I hope you get to go to some festivals in the future for your films. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, this is the first one I've really entered into with a film, because uh, all the others have really been scripts. Um, but how amazing would that be to go to a film festival? Would you crowdfund it, or would you personally fund it? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I thought it was crowdfunding. I helped a director out recently because it's a it's a low budget film, and um, he's his costs have gone up so much because COVID. It's a film I'm working on, so I did a concert on stage it, and it got something like four or five hundred pounds towards the COVID budget on his film. That's amazing. Um, I have, I've used Indiegogo before um, and raised a little bit, but I don't think. I have the skill of um, fundraising in that way, so it's something I need to work on. You know what's a good idea? Um, becoming friends with your cost or any, you know, anyone on your on the more performance side of your um, of your film. A lot of the cast will um, potentially have fans from other films, from theatre, and stuff like that, and asking them to help you out the fundraiser. Yeah, I think I did it the wrong way around. I tried the fundraiser and got the actors afterwards. I think I should get the <laughs> actors first and then the fundraiser. <laughs> oh, any friend of yours that has, I mean, I'm, I'm quite lucky because of the stage it shows were going on. That's why I did it. But I had mm. quite a, a, a nice fan base there that were happy to help out. And I didn't know they were going to help out that much. I thought it'd be maybe mm. 50 pounds. Um, but if you like, you know, like if you have any friends or that radio show host, that's your friend, you know, someone who, who's got, a fan base who who will listen more because I think it's difficult for a director because you're behind the scenes so you don't yeah. necessarily people may like your films 
but they don't necessarily think about the director so much. They think about the people up front. Yeah, true. So that's, that's a good idea. <laughs> I don't know if we'll find out, but <laughs> <laughs> you're living your land. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for um, breaking all the records of how long the podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure people will do it. Well, um, thank you for, for having me. And uh, sorry, I, I talked far too much. <laughs> oh, normally it ends because I run out of questions. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And you have to come back again sometime. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in once again to The Rosin Diaries by myself, Hannah Warmer. This is season three of The Rosin Diaries. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for your support. And if you would like to support me further, you can always go to my PayPal, Hannah Warmer. You can see that on the link on Spotify, I'm sure, and everywhere else. And feel free to support me that way. See you next week.